Welcome back to season five of That's What She Did podcast. We're dedicated to amplifying the voices of the women leaders, innovators, and rebels you don't already know. We highlight everyday women who are impacting today's social issues while also centering the voices of women of color. In short, we curate the stories of brilliant women. This season, we're bringing you Women Who Disrupt. Each episode, you're going to hear from an impactful and inspiring woman who push your thinking, challenge your assumptions, and most importantly, inspire you to find a way to create impact in your corner of the world. I'm Tangia Renee, creator and host of That's What She Did. Thank you for joining me and your fellow inspiration junkies as we learn from and connect with today's brilliant women. Hey there, friends. It's me, your host, Tangi Renee. You are listening to episode 15 of That's What She Did podcast, and this is season five. That means, since this is episode 15, we only have one episode left after this. This is the longest season uh, that I've produced so far. And I'll just say, y'all, podcasting is intense. (laughs) And I'm a little bit tired, but we're going to get this done. Now, if you've been listening to the show, then you know that we are 100% in solidarity with the movement uh, to end racism and police brutality. And we want to keep the focus on the movement and not distract from that in any way. So we've done a couple of episodes um, that I think help. I don't know. They they contribute to the conversation, maybe, or hopefully for our listeners, they're expanding your thinking and introducing you to some really key voices that are doing this work. Um, and even though we are pretty much at, almost at the end of this season, I am working on a bonus episode that is tr- trying to bring together some voices from the front lines that are leaders in this work. We'll see. I mean, scheduling is tough. We're obviously in a revolution and those people are focusing their their energy where it needs to be focused. And that's on the work, not on this show. But with a little luck, we might be able to grab a little bit of time. So Wish me luck on that. If just just stay posted. If you are subscribed to the show, you will see a bonus episode when it comes out. But after this, we only have one more week on the show. I hope you've enjoyed it um, as much as I have. This has been incredible. The guests I'm so thankful for are they're just so badass and so knowledgeable and have really sharpened my thinking and thinking and deepened my knowledge. And I hope that they've done the same for you. I feel 100% inspired by every person I've had the opportunity to talk to on this show and by you all for showing up every week. I get your messages. um, I get your DMs. Thank you so much for being a supporter of this show. That said, the episode this week was recorded prior to the uprising and is not directly related. But We are going to do that episode right now because we want to honor 
the work and time that our guests are giving to us, even though it's not 100% in context of of what's happening in real time in our country. Um, This person is incredible. She's so smart and has done such great work and her work deserves to be amplified. And so we're going to share the episode and I hope you enjoy her as much as I did. Another person that has really deepened my thinking around issues and I'm excited that she was able to make some time for us on the show. And a quick reminder that season six, which we will release in the fall, is the She Wrote That Season. So we are highlighting women ex authors across all genres who are writing on topics that are impacting today's social issues. So if you are an author or you know an author, again, any genre that should be on this show you got to let me know. So DM me on the gram or send me an email to that's what she did podcast at gmail.com. If you're an author, send your pitch, please. I'm excited about it. We have so many great books to talk about and we're still accepting a few more pitches um, to fill those guest spots. So if you are someone that should be on the show or you know an author, you got to get in touch. I have deliberately held three spots to make sure that we are crowdsourcing from our audience and opening up this um, these guest spots to as many women X authors as possible. So don't forget that. Get your pitch in or tell your friends that are writing books and let me know. So I want to introduce you to Corinne Rice. She's a journalist for powwows.com. She has also published written pieces for the Huffington Post, AJ Plus, and Chime for Change in Gucci Magazine. She's spoken publicly at the San Jose State University, University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and for Facebook. She is also the executive director of a nonprofit called Buffalo Project, which works in trainings on healthy masculinity in non-Indigenous communities using traditional understandings of balance. She currently lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with her two young children. It was such a pleasure having her on the show. We're talking about toxic masculinity in this episode and her unique approach to dismantling it from her indigenous background. Um, So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Don't forget to connect with Corinne and head over to our website. That's what she did podcast.com for the links and the show notes. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of That's What She Did podcast. I have with us this week Corinne Rice, who is a journalist. She is the executive director of the Buffalo Project. She's an activist. She is doing a lot of things, an activist, writer, influencer. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> like a lot of different things. We're going to talk about all, these, all of this stuff Um I was really interested in the work that you do, Corinne Rice, when I came across your profile on Instagram, sort of, I think, I don't think any, some, no, no, I remember now. So somebody um, 
I think it was my editor at the time was like, have you seen this Instagram profile? Um, because I'm always trying to sort of crowdsource who are the guests going to be like masking all the time. Mm-hmm. Who do you want to hear from? Who's interesting to you? Who do you think is, you know, making impact in whatever their space is. And so somebody tagged me on one of your posts. And so I started following your Instagram account and I was like, this lady is up to something cool. I don't exactly know what it is yet, but I just sort of <laughs> flagged it and yeah. circled back at some point and decided to reach out to you. Um, because you're, you, you just are doing a lot of things in the world of social justice, specifically related to both toxic masculinity and culturally in your culture and in the ind- indigenous people's culture mm-hmm. and, and, and all of that. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about the specific ways that you were finding to be disruptive in your space as a nonprofit leader, as a journalist, as an activist and why it's all important to you. So there's a lot to talk about today. (laughs) Let's see, where should we start? Why don't you start, Corinne, by getting the listeners up to speed on what you're doing now? What is the focus of your work? Oh, what am I doing now? Um, Well, that's always, that's always the longest answer when someone says, oh, what do you do for work? What's your job? Because I literally have like four. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, I, I am a journalist for powwows.com and um, journalist and photographer. Um, and um, I'm, I'm currently writing for them. I do, I do still have some articles that come out from that, but um, but I'm still, but because of that opportunity, I do also freelance writing. So, um, I have written for Huffington Post and AJ plus, and then most recently for Gucci's magazine, Chime for Change, mm-hmm. uh, which is really exciting too. Um, and then aside from the journalism that I'm a part of, um, I am the executive director of Buffalo Project. We are currently kind of in a holding space because of the COVID-19, um, our trainings are in person. They don't really work well online. Um, and then the development of our program is also on hold because of that. So, mm-hmm. um, but the work still exists. Sure. And then, um, and then the other thing that I am a part of is I am a program coordinator for uh, the Project Beacon Grant, which is through the Office for Victims of Crime with the Department of Justice. Um, it's a grant that's offered uh, for urban tribal communities. Um, we su- I support five uh, urban tribal health centers in their direct services to survivors of sexual assault mm-hmm. um, and sex trafficking. Um, so that's what I do nine to five, Monday through Friday. <laughs> and then um, and then I just I'm also involved with uh, education via my online platforms as much as I can. So if people have things that they think need to be talked about or heard about, um, I speak on that. I've um, I've been uh, humbled to been asked uh, to be part of a human trafficking panel at the University of Nebraska last year, which was really uh, it was a good opportunity to share a lot of information with that community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of I don't know I have like a whole bunch of stuff going on that uh, my family always wonders why I don't have more ulcers than I already have, <laughs> but. <laughs> That's just kind of how I operate. They're always like, oh, Corinne, you're just so lazy all the time. <laughs> but no, it's really like, I do a lot. I do a lot. You are doing a lot. 
you know, one of the things that I noticed when I first started following your profile is that you're pretty heavily involved in the missing, murdered, and Indigenous women activist movement. How did right. you come into that space and what are you doing there now? Well, I mean, initially I, I came into that space because it affects me. It affects right. me personally and it affects my community. It affects everyone that I love that is that is Indigenous and is a woman mm-hmm. uh, and even and not even just missing murdered indigenous women we like to say missing murdered indigenous relatives because we also have uh two-spirit what we call two-spirit relatives or the lgbtq community that mm-hmm. also go missing um or who are trafficked um and exploited um so i got involved because it it affects me because i uh, I, I read through the statistics of native women and 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 who is targeted and why they're targeted and it was two out of three native women will be physically assaulted or sexually assaulted in their lifetime and i already met that 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 statistic i was mm-hmm. like that okay and then reading through all the statistics of you know these women who go missing or who are murdered i'm like i that could be me mm-hmm. it's not me but it could be me and because of that I was like, I need to do something. I, I should be involved in some way. And so, um, and so I did get involved. Um, and that was really the start being involved in, in missing murdered indigenous women in that I started Buffalo project, mm-hmm. right? There is not really, you can't just say, I want to be involved with missing murdered indigenous women education and awareness. And then there's one place you go, right? right? Cause there's so many different organizations and people who are working in that that issue mm-hmm. that it's hard to pinpoint and be like if I want to get involved with this I should go here right because there are so many different avenues and places and people who are mm-hmm. working for this issue so uh so when I I got involved with I was part of a change maker it's called change maker initiative um and it was with an organization called Ashoka and Ashoka USA, it's a national, it's, it's worldwide, but the, the, the United States has um, a department of Ashoka as well. And they do um, change makers and they have these fellowships. And so they partnered with change maker initiative. And I received this fellowship to take a social justice issue and come up with an innovative way to fight or to solve that issue. And, um, and I knew missing murdered indigenous women was an issue in my community and human trafficking is an issue in my community. And I was like, I don't want to be another uh, direct service provider or victim assistance provider because there are so many awesome places that are already doing that important work. I don't even want them to have that work anymore. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if they were obsolete, if their work was obsolete? And I was like, human trafficking is a business. What if we attacked the demand for that business, mm-hmm. what would that look like? And in my in my understandings, it was if we had a if we had a a nation of emotionally healthy men who had a strong support system and a place where they could go to heal and work on their trauma, then they wouldn't be turning to physical violence or they wouldn't be turning to trafficked women um, to fill that that void that they were experiencing mm-hmm. um, or that hurt that they were experiencing. Um, we conducted an interview of 80 men. And in the 
interview of these 80 men, 70% of them did not have another male in their life. They had a woman. Mm-hmm. Oh, they had women that they could turn to, but that's not our responsibility. They need to have, men need to have their own support mm-hmm. because men are going to understand what men go through. Um, so there was a need. There was a need for, for, for somebody to step into that community of men. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I have male instructors that go into that space and work with the men because it needs to be men supporting men. Um, but there, but because part of the indigenous teachings that we bring into this is balance, um, I bring in the the feminine, my feminine and uh, uh, matriarchal views and culturally cultural matriarchal views into the development of the curriculum, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that. So we have culturally we have these balance of like masculine traits and feminine traits culturally. Uh, at least for my Lakota and Mohawk culture. And so that gets discussed. But I also have an instructor who's Kanaka. Mm-hmm. And so he, bring, he brings aspects of his culture to his t- classes. And my Lakota instructor will bring aspects of his culture to his classes. So it's not a cookie cutter right. kind of thing. So when you were doing, going through the process of of thinking about how were you specifically going to address trafficking and this large issue, this huge issue of the statistics of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the rationale where, where it's like, this is a business. Yes, it's a business. So if we attack the demand for that business, then we eliminate the problem. Makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. But how did you make the jump from that? Like, let's look at the business model of sex trafficking and see what mm-hmm. we can impact there to, well, let's, let's really like change toxic masculinity. Like, let's really change the way men are relating to women, the way men are thinking about women because when I think about a business model I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. make the jump in my mind to the to toxic masculinity right so how did you get there (laughs) yeah Uh, so I basically was I I, I'm examining the consumer Mm -hmm. right so I'm thinking we're the demand for this product product being trafficked people Mm -hmm. um is 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 a is a deep observation of who the consumer is of this product and the consumer is most often at least in the statistics that i have on who takes advantage of native women who are trafficked is white males um especially in places like the man camp so you have to so you think about like what kind of person is going to be consuming that product Mm-hmm. And what creates that that consumer? What is the environment that creates that consumer of that product? And all of those traits were falling under that 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 label of of, of a version of masculinity that is toxic, right? So that's kind of where the connection was. Yeah, <laughs> so for me at least. So you make that connection, and yeah. and I get the rationale completely when you explain it. Then. 
you know, I, I have co you know, I've, I've have some background in the nonprofit space and co-founded a nonprofit. And I remember the process of going through the business plan and doing oh gosh, yes. the, you know, <laughs> you do all the models, the program models and everything, and then you have to yeah. take it to your funders and you gotta, you gotta pitch it. You gotta sell them on it. So how was mm-hmm. that initially received? Oh, that was very interesting. Um, well, and for the initial startup of it, there were a lot of white males who were on that committee or the people who were listening to me pitch this mm-hmm. idea. And I remember being met with a lot of resistance, um, a lot of what, who are you to speak on this? And why do you think that you get to talk about this issue? Um, and I remember, I remember before going into that meeting or meetings, uh, and preparing myself for that response because I was like, this is not going to be well received. <laughs> like I already knew like this was an affluent community that I was speaking with. It's one of the richest communities in the state of California, really is, uh, Los Altos, California. And, um, and I was, I was like, Oh gosh, here we go. This is, this is, and if I can't handle this, then I better step away from this industry and from this, this dream right now, basically, because if I can't, if I can't handle a couple old white men telling me that they think that my idea is bad, then I'm never going to get anywhere with this organization. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like, that's the reality of it. Sure. But, but, but the cool thing with all that though, is that the more, they talked to me over the weeks that I was developing everything and, and meeting again and talking about it. And they started to have this shift and their shift went from being totally resistant to the idea and defensive to, Oh, I see what you're doing. And I see that you're coming from a space of compassion as well uh, because it is from a space of compassion. I want those, these men who come into the program to find support and find healing mm-hmm. and to come to a space where they have begun um, creating new neural pathways of thinking, new ways, um, new ways to, to react to things in their lifetime. And that is a process. So I got to see their, their shift and realize that this is the same thing I'm going to come across when I take Buffalo project into somewhere like Google and say, Hey, mm-hmm. HR, your, your, your company needs this for your boys club in your Mm -hmm. tech industry. Right. So, um, I, I was, it was, it was refreshing to see like, okay, so people can come around to this idea, but really I I am always met with resistance in bringing this idea anywhere, not even just in the creation of the organization, Mm -hmm. because it's not, it's not a fluffy, nice topic either. It's like, Hey, let's talk about human trafficking and how it affects the community. And nobody wants to talk about that to begin with. And then let's also talk about how men are the root uh, issue here. And (laughs) then let's address those problems. Like nobody wants to do that, but some places do. And when you find those places, it's refreshing. And so how do you get men into this program? Um, well, it's usually like a, um, a larger other organization mm-hmm. that will come to us asking for us to come. And then like, if it's a company, then they require their employees to attend or if it's a, um, um, a 
presentation that I'm giving, there are men out there who are aware that the issue exists and want to do things about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I have when I whenever I operate with this organization, I I have to always remember that there are men who are seeking healing all the time, mm-hmm. who know that what they are around makes them uncomfortable, but maybe don't have the tools to speak up or to say anything, or maybe they don't feel supported either. Because I know that some of the men who've gone through our program talked about one of the things we do in the program is they make a pact with each other. They partner up Mm -hmm. and they have a support that they agree to support each other. So when one, one man sees something in the workplace that is toxic behavior, the two of them together will say something. So it's not one person speaking up. It's two men confronting or saying something to the other man about the behavior that they find is uh, abhorrent or whatever. And so then that other individual will be like, oh, well, it's not just one guy. I can't put him down or emasculate him for what he just said because there's two people coming to me telling me telling they're uncomfortable with my behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that's kind of the hope. I'm super curious to know what the experience is like for men, because this is a topic that has come up a couple of times, toxic masculinity, just this season Mm. um, with some of the, the other guests. And yeah. So in your work with specifically with Buffalo project, you are working towards disrupting the sex traffic industry, right? Like basically yep. shutting it down. But the avenue to that is by disrupting the way men relate to and think about women. I think. Right. And it's not just human trafficking. We aim to dis- to disrupt. It's also violence against women. Mm-hmm. So, so human trafficking, violence against women and all the other uh, symptoms and and results of I should say the results of toxic behaviors and masculinity sure so when I when I've been taught this season I've been talking to other women who are I think you're the only person that we've we've talked to who's like specifically working in this in this space but other women who are disruptors and are trying to create social change are coming up against toxic masculinity and so they are engaging with it in, in different ways And they're talking about it. And what's interesting to me is that it feels like, and I could be wrong about this, that until recently, there was no space for men to even be curious, like safely be curious about how to be with women. Mm -hmm. And I think Me Too and Time's Up has have sort of accelerated that and brought that to the forefront. But I keep sensing that men just in general are still very nervous and maybe a little lost in figuring out how to be men, whatever that means to them and be Mm -hmm. men with women, whether it's in an intimate relationship or just be adjacent to women, like not even in an intimate relationship, but just a sister, an aunt, your next door neighbor, the person that you work with. Um, So how do we get men to navigate these spaces better (laughs) with women? (laughs) Yeah. And that, I don't know. I don't even know if that's our role. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if that's our role as women. I think that they they are beginning to figure that out themselves. 
And I think that as women, we have to allow them that space and that time to do that work. Um, I think that it's really easy for us as women in a relationship to call out where the problems and the issues are, um, which is absolutely we should be doing that. We should be standing up for where the problems and issues in any relationship, whether it's familial or uh, if it's a love relationship. Um, And then we also need to support them in their healing process. And whatever that means for them, um, whatever, however much time that takes for them. If they, if a man is willing to work on his behavior, then we, as women in a partnership or in relation, whether it's my brother or my father or a neighbor, if that person is genuinely trying to correct their behavior and seeking ways to do that, that is their space and their time and their process. And I have to honor that. And if I, like, if I were to say, you got to do this faster or you're not doing that right. Mm-hmm. Or why are, or, or for to see, for to see a man cry and be like, I don't want to deal with this. You know, that's not honoring his space and his time to be vulnerable when we have already asked him to be right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I don't think necessarily that it is women's role or space to find out or solve that issue for men in terms of when they are going to right. solve their own healing. I think that they, as a community of men together will support each other. Um, and I, I, and I'm, and I'm hoping that comes after we've given them this healthy network of support. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one thing that Buffalo project tries to do is make sure that when they leave our program, they have that support net already in place because they've all started their process. They've all started their rewiring of their thinking. Um, and so they need somebody who understands to go through it with them and process it with them. Mm-hmm. So they have, um, so they feel supported in what they're doing. And I know some of our initial trial runs of our program, the men that were part of that still have a Facebook chat going where they check in with each other mm-hmm. all the time. And that was just, that wasn't even a fully developed program. That was just, let's do a half day run of this curriculum and see how it works and then have a focus group meeting on it, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. They still are in contact with each other and supporting each other because they were so desperate and in need of, rightfully so, permission to work on their emotional states with each other. Mm -hmm. And in that space, they were given permission to be vulnerable, given exercises, which gave all of them permission to be vulnerable with each other. And that developed trust. Yeah. So what do you think is, what do you think needs to happen socially, culturally, whatever, to maybe be a trigger, a catalyst of some kind for men to engage with this topic in a meaningful way? I mean, it's one thing to work, you know, partner with an organization and provide this program that way. But how do we reach tipping point? (laughs) You know, yeah, that's the, and that's I, the hard I, thing. I don't know, really. Um, I would like to think that it's compassion, that mm-hmm. enough men will feel compassion enough and see society for what it is that they will have a desire to work on themselves. But that happens for every person at different times in their lives. Right. Uh, and so there's no one clear answer or way to say that's what's going to get it started. But, and I think that I, and I think that it would be false if it was something that 
that got it going for everybody at the same time. I don't think that would be authentic because everybody's journey is so different. Mm -hmm. Um, I would call into question the authenticity of an, of an awakening that large, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's fascinating to me because I think in our own personal lives, we sort of see the individual Mm -hmm. men in our lives, sometimes evolving and yeah, some of them evolving and some of them not. And there, I think to, you know, the sort of more subtle point you were making earlier is like, as a, as women, it's not our job to make them have that process in their lives. But at the same time, there's this um, juxtaposition of trying to be supportive or trying to encourage that. And I think even I struggle with that sometimes because you know, I, I grew up probably like most women of color like me where men were supposed to be very strong and stoic and not express a lot of emotion. And so sometimes there's a uneasiness for me if, I, mm-hmm. if I'm with a, a male person in my life who's being emotional for some reason or being vulnerable. And I right. have to check myself because I don't know what to do with that all the time. Right. right? And that's, that's toxic masculinity in a, in a female. Mm-hmm. In a, in, it's exactly what that is. Is our, our, like People don't address that enough, I think, is that women can also exhibit toxic masculine traits because we are a balance of feminine and masculine traits as well, just like men are, a, 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 should be. A healthy balance of masculine and feminine traits, and, and I'm talking uh, traditionally here, right? Like culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that women—that's not part of the conversation very frequently—is that we can also exhibit those traits, like mm-hmm. culturally. Why are you crying? Yeah. Why are you crying? Like what? Like man up or whatever. Right. We, women are also uh, are also guilty of using those those phrases and those um, excuses for not allowing the men in their lives to mm-hmm. be vulnerable or be emotional. So do you think that's a process for the women, woman in that scenario of some internal introspective work that needs to happen? And what do you think that looks like for somebody? How does somebody well, start that? Well, I think, I don't know if somebody ever, I think that that's some serious uh, internal work. If you notice it on your own, if you're exhibiting the behavior and then notice it on your own, I think it's usually called out Mm -hmm. and brought to your attention. And then you have to address it because it's been placed in front of you and you are being this way. Oh, shit. I better like evaluate myself real Mm -hmm. quick. Am I being that way? And, And even that takes a level of maturity and evolution, right? Can you step back from your own self and observe your own behavior outside of your, your biases and be like, am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that behavior healthy? Why am I doing this? And then to self-analyze, like, holy, you got to be in like a different space mentally and in your evolution of, of, of knowing yourself, knowing um, what, what uh, aspects of yourself need work or healing. And that is. Mm-hmm. That is just as hard, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I think it's always somebody brings it to the attention or the forefront of your thoughts. And I don't, I don't know if that many, I don't know if many 
people self self analyze on their own mm-hmm. that way, you know? Right. I think all I'm thinking of personally, right? All of my self evolution moments have come because somebody said, you know, this is what you're doing. And I go, what? Defensive, right? right? First thing, oh, I am not doing that behavior. I don't know what you're talking about. And then reflection, mm-hmm. self analyzing, correcting the behavior. Mm-hmm. practicing it over and over and over yeah. again yeah like making mistakes screwing up trying again right, <laughs> right? Exactly. it's a process yeah <laughs> yes it's a process with all of the stuff you're working on I mean it's big stuff and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time what's end game for you um I'm not gonna say solving human trafficking okay. I think that that's unrealistic I think that that sets myself up for failure to say that the end game is to have this issue disappear, right? Um, I think for me, end game is to small networks emerging, mm-hmm. supporting each other and healing and growth. That to me, seeing that or seeing seeing a man hesitate and think about his actions before he catcalls a woman and decides not to is a success. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, end game is to, to know that there are new networks of supports. There are men out in the world who are working on their healing. Um, so in it, and in that case, it's already a success. Mm-hmm. And I have said this before, even if Buffalo project goes nowhere else um, and doesn't grow to be this huge organization where I'm in every state and every program, even if it never achieves those things, to know that there are men out there who are f- who are now raising their boys and their girls in a way that is under a healthy gaze of what it means to be a healthy man and a healthy a healthy woman and balanced, and then it's a success. Mm-hmm. Then that is end game for me. And I don't know if that's um, what I think that's a pretty, I would call it um, a decolonized way of viewing that as a success. Mm-hmm. The colonized definition of success is to have one desired outcome. And if it doesn't meet that desired outcome, then it is a failure. Mm. That's, that's the colonized version of success. And I think it's, that's a very harmful way to view success mm-hmm. in your endeavors. And it, it limits you. Mm-hmm. Whereas a decolonized mindset in that would say, here are all the beautiful branches of success that can come from this, this scenario that I started. Mm-hmm. Here are all of these leaves and all of these roots that are coming from this one moment, this one seed that have sprouted in a million different directions. And that is my success. You know, one of the things about being a disruptor is that it's tough work mm-hmm. and it can grind you up and spit you out if you're not careful. Yep. So in the midst of all of that, how do you maintain your sense of self to be able to carry on? Cultural practices, Mm. cultural practices of faith, um, knowing where I come from, knowing who my people are, knowing my community, having elders that I turn to. Oh, I couldn't do this alone. If I tried to do this work alone, if I tried to do this um, on my own energy, I would have burned out right away. Um, but I turned to uh, Inipi, which is a sweat ceremony, um, different aspects of my faith, um, praying, even cooking is ceremony for us, right? Mm-hmm. We put our thoughts into our food. And so um, 
there are so many aspects of being connected with and tied to my culture and my culture's beliefs and, and ways of living um, that keep me renewed. And that doesn't always work, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't always do enough, but it is part of what keeps me sustained. The other, the other part that keeps me sustained is the people that I love having a strong support network of my own, mm-hmm. my partner, like when I'm having a really horrible time or I'm feeling drained or unappreciated or blah, 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 all the list, right? I turn to him and I can lean on him. That's food. Mm-hmm. That's nourishment. That's medicine. That's medicine. Mm-hmm. It heals. It heals when I feel depleted. Yeah. So that's how I keep going. It's tough work. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is. Is. <laughs> it is not easy. And I cry many nights. I cry, <laughs> but <laughs> but that's medicine too. Crying is good. <laughs> what do you think <laughs> all of this has taught you about yourself? Oh, that I'm much stronger than I ever imagined I could ever possibly be. When I look back to the woman that I was in 2009 versus the woman that I am in 2020, she's a totally different person. Mm-hmm. Totally different person. And I never, like, if I met myself. If I took my 2009 self and I met myself today, I would be intimidated and I would be, uh, I would be a little appalled because I used to be pretty, uh, pretty conservative in my thinking. And so to see who I've become and evolved into, um, yeah, I, I, I'm surprised at, I surprise myself what I survive and come through and pull out of. And then I go, wow, I did that. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's next? <laughs> you so you would be intimidated. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean you would be intimidated? Um, because I think the person, like who I am, when I am in a meeting space or giving a presentation or talking with people who know me from Instagram and all this, like I am this woman who is like I know what I'm talking about in that space and I'm confident about it. Mm-hmm. I'm also not. I'm also aware that I'm not alone in that space or that knowledge, and so I'm always trying to honor the people that I bring with me and the knowledge that I'm bringing with me. That's intimidating as a twenty-year-old. If I'd seen, like, I'd have been like. Oh my God, like, I don't know if I can go talk to this person. And that, and that's a huge change, right? Even in your own understanding of self, it's like, whoa, like I'm a totally different person, literally. Yeah. I, I love the way that you characterize that though. Just like very simply, I would be intimidated of the, by the woman I am now. And I find that especially empowering, like a really inspiring thought that you know, everybody on some level is dealing with imposter syndrome. I think women, Mm -hmm. especially women of color, you know, black indigenous women of color, especially are Mm -hmm. facing some really deep seated levels of inadequacy concerns and, and imposter syndrome, um, just because of the way that this country is set up. So, (laughs) um, I think it's really encouraging to say to somebody, you know, like you're in a certain place today, but you can, you can become the kind of woman that the you today would be intimidated by. Just imagine that, imagine that level of growth. That's, that's, that's really cool. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's amazing. Um, Corinne, how can our listeners learn more about you, the Buffalo Project, and any of the other various places that you are impacting? <laughs> Um, yeah, if you want, you can go find me on Instagram is at Miss Corinne 86 is my handle. And that's M-I-S-S-C-O-R-I-N-N-E 86. And then um, Buffalo Project is buffaloproject.org. And then we also are on Instagram as Brothers um, Brothers Leading Openness, excuse mm-hmm. me, is the handle for that. And um, yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that um, missing murdered and indigenous women has a day coming up now in May. By the time this episode yes. um, is available for download, we will have missed that date. But um, for people that would like to, first of all, learn more or like to be involved or want to support that project specifically in any way, where should they go? Um, it, there's, so it's May 5th and, um, if you search the hashtag on Instagram, MMIW, that will take you to a wealth of information and posts and organizations that are also utilizing that hashtag, um, and post, um, information as of COVID-19, but usually we would have, they would there would be marches locally that if somebody wanted to be a part of that, they could. Um, but we ask um, people to wear red in honor of the missing and murdered indigenous women on that day. Okay. So I'm sorry that we couldn't get this recorded before that event is going to happen, but um, people can still get involved. Um, last season we had on another missing murdered and Indigenous women activists, Sunny Red Bear. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Sunny. She was our last season. <laughs> Still one of our most popular episodes. Um, I think people were really interested in learning more about the movement and what's happening there. True crime is definitely having a big moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, get involved. You can support that in any number of ways, even if you can't volunteer, physically be there, you can donate year around if you have the means and everything um, is helpful and it goes a long way. So consider getting involved. At the very least, connect with Corinne Rice and the work that she's doing. It's really incredible. It's different. I don't know a lot of organizations or a lot of people that are trying to change sex trafficking and and violence against women by changing literally the way men think. So (laughs) get involved. Thanks so much, Corinne, for being a guest. I appreciate your time so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure for sure. All right, folks, you know what to do now. Make sure you are sharing this episode. Who needs to know about this? Think about three people that should know more about this issue and this work and send this to them. It's a quick forward. It's a tweet. We're all on the social media channels. So just tag somebody in the post, get them to listen. That is the best way that you can support this work right now. That's the best way you can support this podcast is by continuing 
to share the episodes. That's how we've grown as quickly as we've grown. And as far as we've gone is because you are amazing and you keep sharing the podcast. So please do that. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to share, of course. And wherever you're listening to this, we always appreciate it if you will leave us a review. So do that. Until next time, we're out. <laughs>